Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Oh, the weather outside is short up! Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck, and I'm your host, and your name is Listener. And that's what you do. <laughs> you listen. Hey, we're getting through the holidays, aren't we? This fucking hellscape of a holiday Bermuda Triangle that we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of. Right? Because you got, you got, I mean, you have Thanksgiving, and then you got Christmas, and then you got New Year's. And that makes a triangle. It's actually, you know, in theory, a box because you throw Hanukkah and or Halloween in there and shit gets weird. And what's it going to become a fucking a Pentagon? That's five sides, right? I think that is, you know, like, uh, no, it's we'll just keep it a triangle for argument's sake. But let me tell you, it's a weird time of year. And I, you know, I live in Southern California. And so you don't really feel the holidays as much. I mean, you know, there's a there's a fair amount of reverie. In the air, you know, the the smellings of, of, uh, of chicory and mulling spice and peppermint mocha in the air, you know? I mean, it feels... It's nice. I'm, I'm actually on a street right now looking at some trees that have actually changed colors in what is basically a, uh, a man-made city in the middle of a desert. Let's be honest. That's what Los Angeles is. I mean, you drive out of the... You drive out of sort of the major sort of 30 mile radius of Los Angeles and you're like, oh, I'm in, I'm in the desert. I'm this, I, we're, we're not meant to be here. Actually, this is not an area that probably was, you know, built to support life. And yet what's going on guys? Um, I don't know. Is this, you know, I would imagine it's the third week or the second and a half week for most people of December and then. I would imagine most people are going to get the week off starting the 23rd and on. Maybe you're going to get two weeks off for New Year's. Maybe if you work in entertainment, you get three weeks off, which is funny because basically our careers are just kind of just one long sort of break anyway. You know, it's just a kind of a you're sort of on a life vacation and then you do a and then you sprint for like two months of work and then you go back to just uh, so much nothingness. Um but no, God, I love it. There's probably people listening to this podcast who are like, oh no, I work at Walmart. I'll be there December 24th till midnight when every asshole who forgot or procrastinated in buying presents decides that they need a $600 84-inch 
plasma screen television or, you know, some Starbucks employees watching this and going, oh, no, people need their fucking lattes Christmas morning. I'm opening, actually, on the 25th. Josh Peck, you privileged bastard. Oh, you get a week off? You get a lifetime off? That's cute. I'm working Sundays. And to those people, I, I give you the utmost respect. I mean, I do. I, I romanticize about having like a kind of like a an hourly gig at Starbucks at times because I do. I like people and I would love to have that sort of shorthand with your regulars like, hi, Joanne, matcha green tea latte <laughs> coming right up. How How's the kids? And we all know like like Joanne and I both know she doesn't have kids, but she sort of that she really just has like 18 cats and the only time she gets out of the house is to come get this green tea latte that she probably goes and shares with the cats. But we just call her her kids because it's, if it makes us all feel less weird than be like, Hey, how are your hordes of cats that you keep in one very small, like I wouldn't even call it a house. I'd call it a bungalow. It's a small dwelling that doesn't support them. It should not be supporting that much animal life, but you know, enjoy your $7 tea, ma'am. Um, but yeah, but, but then again, if I worked at Starbucks, I'm sure I would fucking hate people. I mean, I get, I go to a local coffee joint, you know, every other day. Listen, I can afford a $5 coffee. I'm doing well. Thank you, Jesus. Jewish Jesus. Um, maybe that's redundant, right? He's Jewish. People know, I mean, you don't have to point it out. But I go to a coffee place all the time, and and it's amazing to see people's poor behavior, uh, the the inequities, and and just the the sad disappointment um, exhibited as far as the human race goes in a place like a like a like a cafe or a, a small coffee joint, because people they just don't know how to act, from the way that they order to the way that they stand in line, to the way that they wait for their coffee. And then the way that they doctor it up, like it's a goddamn fucking lab experiment. It's like, boo-boo, throw a little fucking almond milk in there and maybe a sugar or two and be on your way or drink it black. What are you making? Are Is this a cake? Are you making poison? Is this the Manhattan Project? What's happening here? It's a coffee. It doesn't need that much attention. And why are you measuring out... A certain amount of simple syrup. I have never ordered a coffee and worried about proportions. But I sip it black. I mean, every now and then I'll get crazy. You know, I have a palate. And the reality is, is that for the most part, I eat fairly healthy. But my palate still calls out. It screams for it. begs me for some fucking bad stuff. Like that French vanilla creamer. Ooh, doggy. Do I love that? Uh, you give me a fucking nice splash of that carnation, whatever it is. And, you know, I know there's well, there's plenty of sucralose and fructose and lots of ose in there. Can't be good for the ov- overall gut biome. I even think you can leave it out of the fridge and it's, it's, it, it's supposedly milk-based. But I think it's just pretty much oil and sugar. But, God, whatever... Whatever formulation those food scientists came up with, they hit it out of the goddamn park. Did the French vanilla scientists win a Pulitzer? 
or a Nobel Prize, I mean, did they? Because if they haven't, we're sleeping on it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, okay, penicillin, sure, awesome. Polio vaccine, yes, important. French vanilla creamer, right up there. Hazelnut, second. Boy, oh boy, parked on a street. There's a lovely postal worker who's staring at me now, and I'm just a fucking weird, weird middle-aged Jewish guy in this car talking to his... I mean, let's be honest, my hundreds of thousands of listeners, this podcast isn't, you know, we're not hurting here at the Curious Podcast. We're doing quite well. Isn't that right, Kevin? Kevin, my engineer and producer, who's mastering this as we speak. Is that a word, mastering? I think it's more musical. I don't know if you master a podcast. I think you just kind of give it the once over and accept that (laughs) the audio quality, at least for mine, is going to be, you know, mediocre at best. Not Kevin's fault, my fault. Because I, well, I just, I, I don't know what I'm doing. On today's show, Liz Allen. Liz, Liz is a beauty. Liz worked in the Obama administration. She is an incredibly um, talented communications, PR, strategist. Uh, just like a, I, I, I'm doing her a disservice if I don't actually read you her bio, which I'm going to read now. Liz Allen served as White House Deputy Communications Director to President Barack Obama, culminating eight years of service in the Obama administration, where she held a number of roles, including White House Director of Message Planning, Deputy Director of Communications to Vice President Joe Biden. I mean, come on. Is that not impressive? I'm impressed. And I was also impressed in how lovely she is. And she was nice enough to sit down and talk with me. Just as a quick disclaimer, um... I've got Liz Allen on this week, David Pluff on next week, who was Obama's campaign strategist and manager and and helped him really to win the presidency. And, uh, you know, listen, we all know my politics here. You know, I don't think you're tuning in here to get a little slice of some conservative viewpoints. But nevertheless, I feel like in an effort to keep it balanced, you know, I've been lucky enough to have... Um, two incredibly smart, incredibly uh, erudite, some might say. Look that word up because I'm not exactly sure if I used it right. Um, you know, people that worked in politics that lean left. And I think, you know, in an effort to hear at least the other side that I should also have some people on uh, from the right in coming weeks or months. So just as a disclaimer... You know, I don't like to polarize the podcast. I want everyone to listen, and I am willing to hear the other side, even if perhaps I don't necessarily agree with it. I think it's important to um, hear it all. But more importantly, Liz Allen is about to change your life. She's about to blow your mind. So I so appreciate her doing the pod. Thank you for doing it, Liz. Here's Liz. He's my full house connection. Uh, let's see. Yeah. So the rule is, it's not always true. Okay. You imagine you're eating the mic. Okay. <laughs> like, so closer than you would think. Okay. Rum, rum, rum. <laughs> this is so great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for doing this. I'm so excited to do it. So, okay. I have to read something off my phone because I'm a, you know, a, a disciplined podcaster who does this research. Of course. 
can we just talk about this bio for a second? <laughs> this is this is just the first paragraph. Sure. Um, Liz Allen currently. I'm sorry. This was from a few years back, but currently serving as special assistant to the president of the United States and director of message planning at the White House, executing communication strategy and public events for President Barack Obama. That's a lot of words. Wow. (laughs) What's that like? You know, when you tell people you used to work for the president or at the time that you were for the president, they're like, the president of what? You're like, the country. And it like is a thing that always blew my mind, even when, even to myself, it blew my mind, right? Like, you don't think you're going to do that when you are a political science major in upstate New York thinking you're going to be a social studies teacher. Yes. Which is what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to be a teacher. Well, to your credit, right, Mm -hmm. I'm sure people studying political science at Georgetown maybe think that. Sure. But, you know, if you go to – if you're not going to, like, the in quotes, like, governmental super um, focused schools, it's, it's not as clear a path. It seems like a reach. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things, it's like, I gave a commencement a few years ago at my alma mater, which was like, by the way, the scariest thing I've ever done. I bet. And it was actually a great exercise because you have to think really hard about, like, what 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 have I learned? Like, why am I where I am? And what can I tell these kids to rise to their moment and give them some advice they can use? Because, look, when you're giving a commencement speech, you automatically think no one's going to remember a word I say. So at the end of it, I was like, look, the Cliff Notes version of, like, why I think I got where I got was work hard and be nice. Mm. Like, it just isn't harder than that. Yes. You know? And D.C. can be a cutthroat town, but it's also a town where, like, people give you a shot. And, like, your work should speak for itself. So that's what I say. I'm like, look, I was lucky. you got to be in the right place at the right time. But if you work hard and you're nice, like, generally you get ahead. That's kind of what I found. What political drama is closest to the real D.C.? <laughs> is it House of Cards, West Wing, maybe Scandal? <laughs> you know what? Honestly, and, and, and I'm not just saying this because I worked in the vice president's office, but a lot of times it's Veep. Yes. Truly. Mm. You know, and, and not because it's all a comedy of errors every day. But because the day-to-day really does feel so much more ordinary than some people may think. Because you're working with people, right? Mm. And, like, the thing you learn from working in the White House, all the way up from, you know, from the president and the vice president, but even just down to, you know, the cooks, the janitors, and whoever, it's like, these are just people coming to work. Yes. You know? So, and I think Veep reflected that. Veep reflected that it was, like, day-to-day people were showing up and going to work. You know, there's, like, certainly, I think, during the Obama years, there was a lot of West Wing influence. You know, but I would say House of Cards is probably the least like it. Right. It's just <laughs> so, drama. Thank God. Could you imagine <laughs> having a first lady and then a president like that? No. And, you know, pushing people off metro stations. Good Lord. Could you imagine? No. Lord of the Flies here. It was real. I mean, you knew that he was going to get his comeuppance eventually. Eventually. Um, so uh, to that point, right, does it, does it instantly humanize the process, right? Because I think as an outsider or civilian, we just look at like government as this machine. Sure. And it's kind of infallible, in, or at least you hope that it is. Right. It's this perfect working thing. But as soon as you get behind the veil, you're like, oh, it's just people like me who have great days, bad days, and days in between. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think what I saw, I think the best you can hope for is that on any given day, people are trying to do the most amount of good for the most amount of people. Mm. You know, like, that's kind of how we felt about it. It's like, you're not going to get everything right. You're, no one's ever going to get anything right. But if you're going to work generally trying to do the most amount of good you can, like, that, that's kind of what I saw. And I, I think especially on the political side. You know, I think I started right after college in D.C. Um, working in government 
but not on the non-political side, right? So George Bush was president when I came in and worked at the State Department in 2006, which was great to me. I was happy to be part of the civilian workforce. You know, at that point, I wasn't, you know, as developed in my political beliefs as I became and as I now identified with. But, um, you know, even then, like seeing the civilian workforce, you know, whose jobs do not depend on who the president is, they're the ones that keep the machine running, right? They're the real heroes, you know, programs that are being implemented and people who need their benefits and, and you know, veterans who need care and people who need health care and, you know, us conducting our diplomacy abroad. Those, those people are all non-political, right. you know, and the, and the federal government can get a bad rep for being bloated or inefficient. And sure, that's, that happens, but that happens everywhere. You know, we know that. Yeah. Like, there's red tape. There's ineffectiveness no matter where you go. But, you know, it's it's like there's a lot of really good people just trying to come to work every day and do their best for the right reasons. We think about, like, how stores or restaurants especially have leakage, right? Yeah. Just no matter what, some beer bottles are going to go missing. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's accounted for. Yeah. Like, even if we police this as best we can, we're going to lose 15 to 20%. It just is part of doing business. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine it's the same thing in government, and then we, as the taxpayers or the people on the outside, just are so quick to cast judgment and find things unacceptable. Yeah, I think that's right. I think what was hard and what continues to be hard is when you see, you know, a failure of the government be weaponized for political purposes. And certainly we experienced that, you know, in the Obama administration. Um, Any president has experienced that. But, you know, you sort of quickly realize that you're not given the benefit of the doubt. You know, and certainly that's something you got to earn, but it's a little jarring when you're like behind the scenes and you're like, no, we're really trying our best here and you're getting, you're getting crushed on TV. Right. I think, you know, a good example of this is the oil spill, the Gulf oil spill, you know, in Obama's first term. And there was just nothing that could compete with the oil camera on the bottom right corner of CNN's screen showing oil gushing out into the ocean where people were like, why can't you fix it? Like, you're, it's inefficient. And the reality is, like, the whole power of the federal government was mobilized to, like, fix this, clean it up. But it's like people thought, like, anything short of Barack Obama, like, going down there and, like, plugging the hole himself was, right. like, unacceptable. Grab a wrench, you know press. I mean? like, <laughs> Come on, Barack. So, and this is where it's been really interesting to be a communicator in politics and in government. And, and it was interesting during my time in the White House because you quickly realize that optics sometimes matter more than facts, mm. right? And like, you know, the, again, to take the oil spill example, it's like, you know, so we started sending President Obama and Vice President Biden down there and, and you know, they were checking up on the Navy ships that were in harbor and they were talking to the Army Corps of Engineers and we were having roundtables with local fishermen in Louisiana and talking about how their livelihoods were affected by the oil spill. And that was all good and necessary and, and showing leadership in that time was important. But that didn't mean that the work wasn't still going on to get it done irrespective of those visits. But yes. it made everybody feel better because it showed leadership, you know, publicly. Is would you say that's the most important job of the president is to show leadership? You know, I think it's one of the most important jobs. Mm. I think it is vitally important, um, and and I think it's important to do it in a way that continually conveys that you're the 
president of everyone, not just the president of people who voted for you. And frankly, I think that's why we're having a hard time now and why people feel so um, off kilter is because, you know, in my view, <laughs> disclaimer, these are my views. Mine um, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people don't feel like this president's a leader for the whole country. They feel like he's a leader just for the people that are voting for him. And that's really scary, right? And so I do think that is one of the most important jobs of any president to try to show leadership in a way that, that anyone who lives in this country feels like they can at least look to their president for some kind of, you know, either moral compass or reassurance or whatever. But look, I think the other thing is, you know, the job of a president really is to just make hard decisions. Mm. And I think like one of the things that's really underappreciated is how much of that has to do with foreign policy. You know, it's like not the sexy positions that get, you know, voters riled up in Iowa and New Hampshire generally. Yes. Right. So it doesn't always get all the play. But a lot of the president and vice president's time behind the scenes was spent on foreign policy because the stakes are so high. Right. Right. Is the, is the dirty little secret to some extent about being president that you have less power than people think? You know, it's a good. I think it's a. It's a. That's a great question. It's like you do this for a living, Josh. Hey, why not? Weird. Welcome. Uh, you know, I think here's what I would say. I think. I think yes and no, and maybe that's unsatisfactory. I think yes in the way that you quickly realize as president, or or those of us who are around a president, that like you can't turn an oil tanker on a dime, mm. right? And that's something Barack Obama used to say some once in a while. It's like sometimes problem solutions to problems were more complicated than being able to snap your fingers. More, I mean, usually they are, right? Yeah. But it's like, oh, you realize you can't move a whole federal bureaucracy quickly, or you can't mobilize outside resources as quickly to reach consensus as you would like. So in some ways, it's true that you don't have as much power as you want, because you can't just snap your fingers. This president certainly thinks he can and would <laughs> like to, but you know, hopefully the uh, safeguards of democracy will hold up here for the next year and a half. But in, you know, in the, in the other sense, you actually realize that you do have a lot of power because it's not just about, it's not just about, you know, tangible results, but it's about setting a tone. Mm. And I think we thought a lot about how do you set an example and what kind of power and responsibility comes with setting an example. And in that way, I think, you know, you have a ton of power. I've heard it said once before that for better or for worse, that the government or sort of the, uh, what our forefathers did was it's the government is created for gridlock. Yeah. And so that means that you'll never be able to do too much good and conversely too much too bad. Too much bad, right. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think that's true. And then I think, you know, the way the three the three branches were set up, you hope that there's a check on power, Yeah. right? Uh, you know, checks and balances. We all remember that from like second grade social studies, right? Second, um, I feel like I was learning that in seventh. Sixth but grade I went to. Studies. I didn't go to a great school. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, I think I think you know a little bit of what feels scary to a lot of us now is you're not seeing every body of government take upon themselves to wield their own power, right, yeah. and check and balance each other. I mean, I think we've seen this. You know, it, currently, I think given the Republican-controlled Senate, um, you know, the Congress isn't really checking the president on his power, and you know, at this time, and that's you know that can that can get scary when you realize that that they're not doing their jobs. This is the big question for Democrats right now: is impeachment, right? Mm. It's like it should 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 Democrats get behind impeachment of President Trump? Because, you know, inarguably, to me, inarguably, <laughs> uh, what he's done warrants impeachment. But, you know, there's obviously a political calculus and other calculus. But it's like, what, what happens when our institutions aren't checking, check, you know, fulfilling their duties and checking power? Is there, how much virtuosity, or I would say, like, 
you know, in the respect of, I heard Bill Maher talk about this once, and Michael Avenatti has proven actually to be much less virtuous than we ever expected. But he was saying that he walked into a room, and this was like when Avenatti was defending Stormy, and he seemed very, like, on the right side sure. of things. And then he's like, I walk into the back room of some party, and there he is with the mooch, with Scaramucci. Right. And they're talking. And I said to him, what are you two doing together? Right. And... They said something to the extent of like, ah, we're Italian boys. We got to stick together. And he was like, God damn it. Right. Is that more true than not that inevitably people are playing a big, long game of like, uh, that everyone's protecting their job. They don't want to rustle feathers. That it, whatever looks good is what what is good for them. There's certainly a lot of that. Yeah. Of course. There's people who are, um, you know doing what's good for them and, you know, paying lip service to a cause publicly and then acting differently privately. Often that's motivated by money. Mm. I mean, I've, you know, I've been in this town for about 15 years and have certainly seen people sort of get drunk on power as the phrase goes, right? Yeah. You know, and that can make people, you know, quickly become hypocrites or, you know, compromise their values. I think the good news is, from what I've seen, and I think from what a lot of my colleagues and peers would say, on both sides of the aisle, by the way, is that there's actually a lot less of that than you would hope and think, which I think is the good news. Right. You know, again, and it gets back to this idea that um, most people, the majority of people, I think, are trying to go to work and, like, you know, be on the level and and do their jobs and, and do them for the right reasons. Um, I think that the, uh, the bad actors who are acting just in the name of power tend to get a lot of attention. Mm. But... Um, but there's, you know, I don't think it's a majority is what I'd say. You know, the other thing, the the, the Mooch Avenatti example actually brings up, although that's like a little bit of an extreme, is like the other like dirty secret, not so secret, is like there's a lot of bipartisan consensus in D.C. And there's a lot of bipartisan friendships. And a lot of us find ourselves the better for having bipartisan relationships. Ginsburg and Scalia, totally. right? Totally. Come on. So I didn't agree on anything. But – um, you know, and I don't want to be naive about it. Like there's some, sometimes you hear that invoked in sort of a good old days kind of sense, you know, and I don't, I don't think we should be naive that, that professionally there's not a lot of consensus and compromise going on. And I have no illusions that, um, you know, there'll be a quick fix back to like, you know, steak dinners and golf with each other, like solve everything in the Senate. I like fundamentally reject that because mm-hmm. I actually think that's more of a sign of, you know, sort of the good old boys and the good old days. And, and, you know, we've, we've moved beyond the era. I think thankfully that, you know, just a bunch of white old guys are controlling everything, but that's not to say that, you know, the open-mindedness that comes with having bipartisan relationships really does better us all. You know, I mean, I work now after politics, I work in a place that's bipartisan and, and we're all the better for it. And it doesn't mean that you can't talk to people about, their kids and how your vacation was and what restaurants are good to go to these days and have a perfectly legitimate conversation. We should be able to do that. Which is, by the way, probably what we'd have with 90% of people, whether they believe in our politics or not. Yeah. I mean, I I have family and people who don't, you know, we don't vote along the same political lines. But as long as we don't get to that subject, we can have a wonderful conversation and dinner and all these things. And also, I believe truly that at their core, they want many of the things that I want for my family and for, you know, government and for the world, but perhaps we differ in the way in which to get there. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I, um, my, both my parents voted for Trump, actually. 
What's what was that like? You know, it has honestly been really hard. This is where this podcast turns into a therapy session. I'm here. God knows I've been <laughs> to enough sessions on my my own. Seriously, I mean, you know, it's it's been a hard journey. I mean, I I've always known that I didn't align politically with my parents, and mm. to their credit, they were always nothing but supportive when I wanted to go work for Barack Obama and Joe Biden, and they celebrated me and my career and my beliefs. They weren't voting for those guys even when I worked for them. Um, you know, and then it kind of took a turn when in 2016 I felt like you know Trump was such a different animal than John McCain or Mitt Romney had been. It was so much harder for me to swallow. But yeah, they they were Trump voters. And now we're at the point where, like you said, we don't talk about it a lot, I would say. Um, but you certainly, we can have an enriching relationship in any other way. Now that requires like some growth and maturity on everyone's part to be able to compartmentalize. But, but you know, you try not to let it ruin your relationships. Because I, I think you're right. I think you know, I think what's sad about politics these days is that there's not an acknowledgement that there is so much more commonality than difference. Mm. And, you know, I, I just, I think that people like to hear what they believe. And so everyone's only listening to beliefs and media and social media that reinforces their views. And it's like breaking down our ability to have an honest conversation because like there's not an agreed upon set of facts. How's that for depressing? I mean, that's the, the whole, uh, to your point, optics of that, of like Mm -hmm. what uh, you're right. Like if we can't agree on the facts, how can we even have a conversation? Mm -hmm. But like to your point, are, are the days of like, if you look at Obama versus McCain, it was, I mean, they were both sort of left centrist, right centrist. Right. And yet it seems like gone are those days. And so even when I'm talking to my damn friends and granted, I live in like a coastal liberal epicenter and when I'll bring certain things up and it's like, unless I am on the left, the most left progressive side of things there, they start looking at me funny and I'm like, guys, like, is, am I a dinosaur at 32? Right, right, right. The answer is no, you're not a dinosaur, because that would make me an older dinosaur. But uh, <laughs> Well, but I think it gets back to your point that not a lot of people realize that, like, the system is set up for compromise. I mean, that's sort of the point, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I also think there's, you know, I, I think it's great to see people engaged, and, and I actually want to get back to something you said on a previous podcast about politics, but, um, you know, you can, you can have a belief about how something should be, but that is not, that we often see that does not marry with like what is actually possible, either mm. legislatively or from an implementation standpoint for a policy or whatever. And I think that's the trouble is people don't want to acknowledge that, sure, in a perfect world, things would be like this. But like, let's live in the world we're living in. Yes. You know, like what can pass through Congress? What is feasible to implement? What can we pay for? If you can't have the chicken, have the fish. <laughs> right. You'll be fed. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good is my message to Democrats here this year. Ugh, so. You don't need a soy burger. Come yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I heard you say. So full disclaimer: I'm a huge Billions fan. Really, I know. I'm, I know. I'm Brian just absolutely Koppelman. obsessed with it. So, so I don't know Brian Koppelman, <laughs> but I follow him on Twitter and noticed that you did a podcast with him. So I listened to a little bit of it, and um, you said on that podcast that you uh, you didn't think that that you were smart enough to comment on politics. And I want to dig into that because I, I, I hope people across this country and the world feel like they can talk about politics. I want to make it more accessible for people because ultimately, like, politics should be about what you believe. Yes. It's a, it's a, it's a tough thing for someone like me because I feel like other people like me that have, like, a small amount of celebrity have used it um, and their social media as this sort of... I don't know, pulpit's the wrong word, but like they they use it as a stage in which to convey these beliefs that I'm not sure are completely vetted. Sure. 
And so I think because we're so quick to tweet and to be reactionary that there's something gets lost in translation. So it's like when I do make a stand, which is more rare, I just want to be as informed as possible, which I hope will, uh, I want to attract, uh, what's the phrase? Um, attraction rather than promotion. Sure. You know, and I feel, and I also, and I feel very strongly about this that, you know, I'm, I'm lucky because the business in which I'm in, my politics pretty much completely align. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's foolish for us to use the Golden Globes or some huge award show as an opportunity to yell at the people that disagree with us. Because I think it just makes the gap bigger instead of endearing someone who maybe doesn't have the same beliefs, looking at these people and just thinking, ah, these limousine liberals, like, can't I just like your movies? You got to shout at me too. I don't think it, I think it has less of a uniting power than people think at times. What do you think? Do you make a distinction between using those platforms? The Golden Gloves is a good example. Um, Because I actually thought what they did sort of in the wake of Me Too was really interesting. Mm. But I, like, I make a distinction between something like that where, you know, for example, like sexual harassment and discrimination in the workplace touches women regardless of their politics. Yes. So in some ways, to me, a cause like that is like an interesting and potentially responsible way to use that platform, which to me is different than getting up there and like bashing Trump in an acceptance speech. Totally. You know, I wonder if you make the same distinction. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. 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 Well, that's like very responsible of you. (laughs) I hope so. I mean, it's... um... It's easy, you know, we've never, we've, it's never been so easy to get your voice out to so many people. Yeah. It's funny, I'm interested to ask you, right, because did you join the administration in 08? Uh, I did the campaign in 08, yep. So I, um, I went to uh, Denver, Colorado and worked on the Democratic Convention, which um, our, you know, our younger listeners may not remember, but, um, but for those that were sort of paying attention during that cycle, that was an interesting convention because it was in the middle of the country. Mm. There hadn't really been a convention outside of the coast in a while, sometimes Chicago, but not typically. And it was, you know, historic. Barack Obama was the first African-American, you know, nominee. And it was in, we had him in the football stadium and it was, you know, a big deal. And that was huge. Yeah. And then I, I spent the rest of 08 in Pennsylvania, which was sort of like ground zero, frankly, in the 08 cycle. You know, there had been a really long, hard-fought primary between him and Secretary Clinton, then Senator Clinton, um, in Pennsylvania, and and a lot of news made in that state. And Pennsylvania was sort of one of those states that you knew you had to win. Yes. Which turned out to be true in 16 as well, because Trump turned it red, and he, you know, he won. Um, so, you know... For anybody who spent time in Pennsylvania, you know, Pittsburgh and Philly are, are certainly more progressive, but the middle of the state is quite red, you know? Oh, and shit, if you're in the yeah. middle of Pennsylvania, you're, you could just as well be in Alabama. I went to, uh, I performed at Slippery Rock University, uh-huh. which is about 45 minutes outside Pittsburgh. Yeah. And I just remember driving there going like, where am I? <laughs> I mean, you get to Slippery Rock, you beautiful people, yeah. but everywhere in between there was straight country. Yeah. 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 So it was, you know, it was an interesting state because, you know, unlike some other states, we really had to, like, tailor our, uh, you know, our sort of voter outreach. You know, you, we had 83 field offices in that state in, in 2008. So now when anyone's like, oh, I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania, I'm like, try me. Yes. I bet, I bet we had a field office there, and I know the whole spreadsheet. Yeah, I've been to, you know, their local Circle K. Exactly. Wawa's. Exactly. Wawa's. Shout out. Come on, sweet tea. Um, do you, was that a massive, um, misstep in the Clinton, um, 
sort of campaign in 2016 was that she felt like certain places like Pennsylvania or the Rust Belt were so in the bag that she didn't campaign there enough? I mean, yeah, it was certainly a mistake. I think one of the dynamics, it was that it's not necessarily that they were a lost cause because they were definitely not going to vote for her. It's that there was some calculation made that by her showing up, this is especially true of Wisconsin and Michigan, that by her showing up, it might actually turn Democratic voters off. Hmm. But they took those votes for granted that those votes would still vote Democrat. Yes. So part of, you know, part of the calculus is, okay, let's not send her, but our polling shows that everyone's still going to vote for us. Let's just not poke the bear. Jeez. And that calculus just turned out to be wrong. Like enough people wanted to take the gamble the other way. So as an expert in communication, <laughs> I'm dying to ask Some you days. <laughs> what did you think of her message of I'm with her? I loved it. And yes. I actually also really liked Stronger Together. And I think it's been like much maligned uh, unfairly. I, You know, maybe we weren't ready for it or maybe it was too pie in the sky for people to sort of understand. But it kind of gets back to the thing you and I just talked about, which is like, let's try to convey something that says that like we have more commonality than difference. And mm. we are better when we're all sort of acting together or thinking together you know, for the common good. Like, that's what I think they were trying to say. Yes. And it just got lost because, you know, compared to Make America Great Again, you know, what Jesus, are you going to do? It's so stupid. You know, it's the dumbing down <laughs> of these sound bites here. It was, it was just great for white guys in the 60s. And that's, mm -hmm. what, that's what they want to get back to. Mm -hmm. um, but my, a criticism I did hear of it that sort of made sense to mm -hmm. me was that if you thought about in 2016 what the candidates' messages were and you thought, President Trump, it was build a wall. And Bernie Sanders was free college. Right. And then you got to Hillary and you thought, I'm with her. And it seemed less clear. I think that's right. I, I'll, I think it seemed less clear. But I also think what we kind of discovered, and, and I have to give a shout out to my uh, friend and former colleague, Jen Palmieri, for uh, writing about this and kind of pounding the drum on this. I mean, I think what 2016 ended up showing was, you know, Hillary and Trump were never playing on the same playing field in hindsight. Interesting. You know, I think we sort of thought they were, or everyone sort of thought they were. Yeah, it's one candidate versus another one. What do you mean it's not the same playing field? But, like, these subliminal biases that, that affected the first major female candidate were, like, turned out to be more real than anybody thought in hindsight. What were those biases? You know, I mean, I, I think, like, it's... You know, Hillary now gets gets criticized or got criticized after she lost that, you know, she didn't have big ideas and, and you know, she wasn't specific enough. Well, like, yes, she did. Yes. You know, like, she talked about them and they were on the website. And, like, there's some there's some version of, like, the, the media either didn't cover it in some cases or when they did, people weren't clicking on those stories, right? It's kind of, you can kind of, like, look at the whole process and see the whole time where, like, people wanted something... Um, different than what she was giving, but they were saying they wanted something different overall, you mm. know? I mean, it, you know, and I think this comes down to, you know, I think about my dad, again, a Trump voter, who, who, to his credit, he and I can engage in dialogue more easily than some of my other Trump voting family members. So I'll give him credit for that, my Fox News watching father. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. What's he, Hannity man? Oh, Lord. Come on. Big Hannity guy. <laughs> and I'm it. like, Thanksgiving's our show. Oh, are my fun, God. I'm I know. Sure. I'm hosting this year, and we're, gonna, uh, we're not going to have Fox on at my house. You but. should invite Rachel Maddow. <laughs> <laughs> see what happens. Yeah, actually, well, I brought my dad to a Christmas dinner at the White House, and he. this is now we're diverging, Josh. But, I, I love it. But uh, I brought my dad to a Christmas party at the White House my final year. It was 2016. It was really special. It's like a, you know, a dinner that the president did for the senior staff every December. This was the final one in 2016. And, 
you know, I was senior enough by that point to have gotten an invite. And, you know, mm. it's the whole cabinet and it's the all the, you know, Joint Chiefs of Staff and, and senior White House staff. And it was really nice. Diana Ross played. It was amazing. Nice. Yeah, you know, just a little High talent end. called Diana Ross. No uh, big deal. You know, and my dad came away from the dinner having met Susan Rice and all these people. And, you know, as a Fox News viewer, all he knew about Susan Rice was Benghazi, Benghazi, Benghazi. Yes. We should hate this woman. Well, Susan Rice happens to be one of my favorite people on the planet. And, you know, so I introduced him to my dad and we were going home that night. My dad's like, God, Susan Rice, what a nice, what a nice lady. And I'm like, well, yeah, like, what do you think here? Like, you know, and it just, you know, it gets back to our whole point in the beginning that like, you know, people are just human. Um, but anyway, to come back to sort of the, the, the way people vote and sort of the, why the Hillary Trump dynamic was the way it was, you know, my dad said to me in 2016 after the primaries, you know, I'm really disappointed because I wanted Marco Rubio in the Republican primary and I would have liked to see Joe Biden run because I would have voted for either of those guys. Hmm. And I was like, I had to like stop myself and be like, all right, instead of jumping on my dad, let's take a beat and let's like unpack this because I actually really want to understand. And I was like, okay, dad, I'm like, but let's talk about the fact that Marco Rubio and Joe Biden have totally different policy platforms. And he was like, Liz, I don't vote on policy platforms. And it was such a, like a light bulb moment because it's not like we don't know that that's true, ah. but like to have like your own father be like, I don't vote on a policy platform. When for me, the whole reason why I got into politics or worked for Barack Obama and Joe Biden is because like I believed in what they wanted to do with this country. You know, like I believed in them and their leadership, of course, right? But we were working for them because we like believed in our like our agenda and our value set. And to, like, have a voter be like, well, I don't really care about the value set or the policy platform. I'm voting for the guy because it's like, who do I feel good about? Now, we could have, like, a whole other conversation about the fact that, like, okay, an obvious commonality between Marco Rubio and Joe Biden is, like, they're both white guys. And so certainly some of this is, like, identity politics. And was that, to, to your dad's point, like, so what does he vote for? I mean, he landed on Trump over Hillary, but, you know, it's it's hard because then after Trump won, we had this a version of this conversation again, aided by like a fair amount of Cabernet. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, some version of, of you know, I want to vote for the person that I think is, is going to act strongly and, you know, things that to me really jumped out as having a lot of subcurrents of sexism and racism and things like that yeah. when you're trying to apply that to, you know, Obama and Hillary – but to someone like my dad, who, again, never overtly espouses racist or sexist beliefs, he's like, oh, no, 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 it's not that. And you're sort of like, but it is. Yes. You know, and I think that that I've had a certain, you know, and, and I'm certainly not painting that wide brush, uh, you know, on a, on, a, on a general electorate, you know, population because people have all kinds of motivations. But that's been a little bit of the journey that I've undergone in my own family of trying to figure out why people vote the way they do. Because um, my dad's turning around this time saying, well, I'd vote for Joe Biden. <laughs> so I'm like, I, you know, what am I supposed to do with that? Dad, <laughs> let's, just, let's just drink more Cabernet. <laughs> I know. That's what we have in common. <laughs> I, You know, it's so interesting. It's funny. Like when I have friends who are frustrated with love, mm -hmm. <laughs> like dating and whatnot, and I say. For those of you who can't see Josh and I, I'm raising my hand. <laughs> frustrated with love. I mean. That's a different podcast. Or this one in a few <laughs> minutes. Um but like I always say to them, stop watching The Notebook then. Like yeah. all your pre preconceived notions of like love and romance, like 
finding the right person and all that is fabulous in all the right ways, but in, not in the way you're expecting, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Similar to Trump, I say to the people like that, they go, I want somebody that's going to get it done. I'm like, no, you just saw Casino too much. <laughs> Like, you just watch Wall Street fucking too much and you think it's just like these blustering guys who like right. don't take no for an answer. But it's like, no, it's actually like the quiet stoic who like can accept that other people are going to act irrationally and are playing the long game. Right. I think that's totally right. I, I also think what I have found is when people say, oh, I want someone who's going to get stuff done or, you know, shake it up or whatever. I don't I understand why to the average person who's not steeped in political issues, because in fairness, like people are trying to live their lives and raise their kids and work jobs, oftentimes multiple jobs. Like I get it that not everyone has time to be as clued into what's happening on Capitol Hill or what are the nuances of a particular policy debate. That's why some of us are in DC trying to do all that work. But the problem is when someone says, and, and I go back to someone in my family said this to me, um, well, Trump got something done, you know, he pulled out of the climate deal. And I was like, but why is that a good thing? Yeah. And, they don't actually know anything about the climate policy. It's just that it was a decision that they perceived as strength, having no context about what that meant. Yes. And that is frustrating to me because I'm like, look, you know, people can vote for who they want for. Like, you know, we're not, I'm never going to like begrudge someone for voting if they are voting in an educated way. I think where we get frustrated is when people are voting and they're not educated. You know, and that, and that reminds me, you know, when, when you were talking about using your platform, you know, one thing I wonder is, you know, sh can people use their platforms just to encourage participation I and education, right. right? And like, is there a happy medium where, because I totally respect you not wanting to sort of, you know, put out beliefs that you either don't know a lot about or, you know, you know, just to sort of say, here's what you should think. Mm. It's like, just participate in the process. Yes. Meaningfully. You know, like take your civic duty, take the responsibility to at least learn a little bit and know why you're doing something. And like, that's a good way, I think, to use a platform, you know? I think Whether so it's too. it's voter registration or whatever. Like Taylor Swift doing yeah. that. I thought that was fabulous. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting medium. And especially when you think of like the 24-hour news cycle and now we're hearing these... Um, uh, there's that great Roger Ailes miniseries with Russell, Russell Crowe. Crow. And one of the most revealing things about it was that Roger Ailes didn't have some deep political belief. He saw a, a, uh, an opportunity yeah. to make a lot of money representing people who didn't have their own news channel. And so he was an utter capitalist in that respect. But I think on both sides, when you're trying to capture people's attention and get them not to turn off the TV during a commercial break, you're going to be guilty of sensationalizing shit or perhaps in a need to be first putting things out that aren't properly vetted. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, and I, and I think, and I'm going to just, I'm going to caveat everything I'm about to say by <laughs> saying I love television. I will never cut my cable. Me I love like the news, I'm a news junkie. I watch more TV than I should. Don't okay. you hate people that are proud of the fact that they don't have a TV? I really do. I'm like, put on your Birkenstocks and take a walk. <laughs> I know. 
Because I'm not impressed. I know. I'm like, to be clear, come over and we can watch Showtime and HBO. Bravo. And we can watch Bravo come and the on. Food Network. I mean, yeah. let's be clear. Like, my real therapy through, like, my political years has been the Food Network. I'm like, I can come home and turn on Bobby Flay and Rachel Ray. And, I know. You know, I know, and I'm like, and I feel better because if I'm focusing on how to make pasta, I am not focusing on the, like, dumpster fire that is happening outside my house. Same here. So. <laughs> but, but all of that being said, so God love all the television creators um you know i think when it comes to the political process the best thing people could do is turn off their tv mm. you know i think you know barack obama used to say that some of his best advice to people was to be widely read like read widely and read stuff outside your comfort zone right like if you're a fox news viewer like let's read the huffington post once in a while mm. and similarly like if you only read the new york times well like guess what you should start reading drudge because, like, the more we understand, like, how information is being conveyed, the more we understand, like, what's true, I think, right? Yes. You can sort of cut through. Um, so, you know, that's one thing. I've, I think I've made a, a little bit of inroads there with some of some family members with different views is, like, look, at the very least, let me sign you up for a few newsletters, you know, and just start reading stuff you don't read right now. I think that's a good place to start. And how do you overcome, and I heard, do you know Nick Bilton? I think so. He's a writer for Vanity Fair yeah, and yeah, the yeah. Times. Yes, and, Vanity Fair, exactly. And he talked about how social media is basically we are becoming victim of our own curation, yeah. right? Because the way that they sell super targeted, expensive, high CPM ads is by knowing that Liz loves the Food Channel right. and that she watches that and billions. And so we're going to directly give her the things in which she will like. Because we have all this research because we track everything she does from her computer to her TV mm -hmm. to whatever. And so you are being constantly supplied more of what they already know you like. And that's for everyone. So my YouTube homepage looks different than yours, then looks different than, you know, the right wing guy wherever they are. Right. So I think there's such a challenge of like, how do you overcome that? How do you bring new information when everyone's kind of in their own echo chamber. 100%. I was just going to say you're only hearing what you're echoing to yourself. Exactly. And that's where that's where I think a little bit of the being intentional about getting away from social media, screens, TV and you know, trying to read more and frankly just have more conversations is important. Mm. And like this opens up the can of worms to like all of social interaction, by the way. I mean, because everything you just said is true about politics, but it's also true of like your daily interests. Yes. Right. And and I think it's a really I think it's a really scary and unfortunate byproduct of echo chambers that people then only talk to people that, you know, they think they agree with and they don't even like want to raise their head up and like talk to the barista, mm. you know. And I think we have to be really, I think we have to be really intentional about trying to push ourselves towards more human interaction. Again, totally outside of politics. Having more political understanding will hopefully be a byproduct of that. But, you know, just for like daily human interaction, I think it's important. There was, there was a really good New York Times column on this actually a couple of weeks ago about like it showed that people who were more intentional about having meaningless day-to-day -day interactions were actually happier. Mm. Right. So it's like, cause now, I mean, I think about those of us who live in cities, like my food's delivered, my dry cleaning's delivered, right? Like I could not talk to my dry cleaner or I could not talk to a pizza guy yeah. forever. But 
you know, I it's funny in my I just moved but in my old neighborhood. I had a dry cleaner for 10 years whose name was Bob, who I loved. And I knew everything about his kids. And like he used to throw in a free shoe repair once in a while. Sounds and it's like, like a great guy. Bob was amazing. Shout out Bob. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> and um, you know, and it's like that seemed meaningless at the time. But now that it, like my dry cleaning is delivered, I'm like, I miss Bob. Of course. You know, and it's just like it's kind of just that's just like a small example of this larger thing where it's like, you know, like it just it made your day better if you're like, hey, man, how's it going? How's your kid at school? And he's like, have a nice day. What are you doing today? And and you don't think about it at the time. But reading this piece really struck me that like, yeah, that stuff really does enhance your day to day, you know. So yeah. I don't know. That's a, that's a little bit of I feel like when I talk to my younger cousins and godchildren and everything, that's a little bit of what I I hope to convey to them. What, Pick your head up, people. Yeah, please. Uh, I, I just started using Postmates, and it is wonderfully convenient. But I, I, I've for a long time, I was like an anti-Postmates Me too. Guy. Yeah, because I'm like, go get your coffee and say hi to the barista. I totally agree. I was like, I, I have a car. I can go get my own damn food. And then, like, the dam broke, and I started – was, I was like, this is the best $5 I could ever spend was it, to get it delivered. It's bad. <laughs> and then I got my Peloton, and now it's yeah. all over. What um, – Oh, wait, I just forgot what I was going to ask you. But, you know, whatever, it's my show, so I'm allowed. Uh, (laughs) uh, Oh, so starting in the administration in 2008 and then leaving in 2016, you were there during the renaissance of social media. Totally. The beginning. What did it look like from when you started to the end of of how you approached that? God, it's such a good question. You know, because I think people forget, like... 2008, like the iPhone had only just come out. MySpace. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. right? Like Twitter wasn't even a thing. Right. You know, it didn't like play any meaningful part in the 2008 election. By 2012, Twitter was definitely starting to drive the narrative, like among reporters especially. And then, you know, by the 2016 cycle and now it's just like, it just drives all conversation basically, social media. And, And, you know, now we got, we're snapping and we're doing all these things. So, you know, it was kind of wild, wild to like watch it grow, not just from like a media standpoint, like as a communicator, we obviously, you know, we're always in discussions with, with the media, you know, print and broadcast journalists about were they going to get an interview? You know, then it was like, oh God, they're giving an interview to, you know, YouTube stars and (laughs) Zach Galifianakis and all of that. Um, You know, we never, we, we never meant to be at war with the traditional media or anything like that. We never meant to go around them, but like our sort of view was, and this was a phrase we used, we had to meet people where they were. Mm. And like by the middle to end of the eight years, People weren't just watching the nightly news, right? They weren't just opening up their papers. They were, you know, on social media platforms and they were watching, you know, get, you know, I think it was something like, you know, by the, by like 2014 or 15, like more Americans were getting their political news on Facebook than all three cable networks combined. Like that's mind blowing. Right. So how could you not be on Facebook? Right. And how can you not be on Twitter? So it was sort of like, it wasn't like an either or in terms of like using those platforms to communicate. It was like, and both, Mm. you know, but I think, you know, I think the interesting thing is people look back and, you know, Obama was the first Twitter president. We were obviously in office when all these platforms did come up to speed, like you said, but as communications people, we tried to, we tried to use them only when there was like a strategic reason to do so, you know, so people remember that Obama did between two ferns with Zach Galifianakis yeah. and they think, you know, that was so funny. And look, to be very clear, like president Obama was like naturally funny. He's a guy with great comedic timing. Like, you know, you're the never going to have, it was wild, right? Magnetic. You're never going to have like a better, you know, you're never going to have a better spokesperson for themselves than Barack Obama. Right? You know, you could, he talked about me once. Do tell. I don't know what the speech was. 
but it was something towards the end okay. and he I remember it distinctly and he was like, Folks <laughs> He was like <laughs> my terrible impression. He's like, Ma I don't know what he was talking about, but I remember it distinctly. He goes, I know what the kids like. They like uh Spongebob. They like Drake and Josh. And I was like, Oh my, <laughs> oh my god. god. Yeah, so anyway. My life is complete. Just saying. <laughs> You're like, Yeah, I know he he knows me by name, Josh. It's we <laughs> talked about you all the time, Josh. Thank no. you. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, not at all. Um, that's a real highlight. Uh, no, I, I was, just, you know, it's like, but the reason why you do something like Zafkalfanekis in between two ferns is like, we did that because Obama went on to talk about the Affordable Care Act and like signing young people up for health care. And by the way, it worked. Like the week following that appearance going public, like tens of millions more people signed up for health care. I mean, it was wild. Yes. You know, similarly, like, so I, you know, I don't take credit for a lot of things, but I was the one who had the idea um, to highlight climate change by Barack Obama, like climbing a glacier with Bear Grylls in mm. Alaska. And they did that. And it's like, yeah, we're not like having Obama talk to Bear Grylls just for like their jollies on like a Monday night NBC primetime show. Like we're going to like talk about conservation and the importance of, you know, combating climate change so that people can enjoy the great outdoors and breathe clean air and have clean water. And, and you know, so you do it to talk about something that matters generally, yeah. you know, and and that was good. And by the way, as it comes to like, the social media generation, that was sort of the first trip where we proposed to the president in our communications plan, all right, sir, you know, part of the communications plan is for you to take your own Instagram photos. And uh, he's like, you know, he sort of gives you the eye roll. Like, really? <laughs> like, I got to take my own Instagram photos? Like, yeah. but he did. And he like, you know, out the, out the window of Air Force One, we're like sitting on the bench together and he's taking the photo of, you know, Denali out the window and we're put on Instagram and, and, you know, he's sort of getting into it and he's sort of getting a hang of like taking his own photos. And then fast forward almost a year to June, 2016. And we went to the national parks, the whole Obama family went to the national parks and a small group of us staff. Cause it was the, uh, hundred year centennial anniversary of the national parks. And we go to Yosemite, and by that point, we'd, like, created a monster. He's like, give me the camera. I'm taking all my own photos. No. He's, like, art directing the video in front of the waterfall. Like, everyone get out of the way. It was, like, very funny. It's, like, fully embracing the first-person social media experience here. Does anyone teach you the um, sort of how in which to address like what sort of what i don't know the manners of of being <laughs> in the white house like is it mr president do you ever screw up and right. call him barry or this uh, is where it's o? important to like follow the west wing not veep so yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh there was no barry slip-ups thank god uh you know i'm not sure how that would have been received definitely with an eye roll um no you know it's funny there is definitely no to answer your question literally like there's no formal training it's all kind of like learned on the job. You learn by observing others. And and also like your relationship with your principal dictates that. You mm. know, like when I was a first year staffer in 2009 for Joe Biden, I thought about him and talked to him much differently than I did by 2016 when I was a senior staffer for Barack Obama. Yes. You know, you can talk to them in a different tone. Um, because you're expected to convey different information when you when you're more senior, right? You got to tell them the bad stuff. <laughs> the more senior you are, the more you got to tell them like it is. Uh, you know, but I think we were pretty safe with sir in any case. That's, you, that's generally what I went with. We threw a few Mr. Presidents in there, but usually sir worked. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> what do you refer to, um, a past president? You still call them president, yeah. yes? Yeah. Um, Mr. President. Yeah. Or sir. Again, very safe. Or sir. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Because I, I plan to meet 
Mr. President Barack Obama. Excellent. Excellent. Um, we'll work I, on that. I just think we'll connect. I don't know. You know, you meet, you see people on TV. I, You're I, like, he's going to be my friend. What am, <laughs> what am I talking about? Like, it's not just in your head, Josh. <laughs> I've got people that come up to me on the street that are like, Josh. And I'm like, we don't know each other. <laughs> okay, so what do you prefer to be called? Would you go with Mr. Peck or with Sir? Commodore. Okay, well, of course, yeah. Admiral. Yeah, yeah. Sensei. Captain. Sure. Sure. Okay. Um, senor. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, okay, so, um, Mr. President, what about sort of when you, when you come into the White House, what's your, as far as like, do you have to go through an incredible security clearance and background check? And do they talk to like your third grade teacher and the everyone in your totally life? The answer is totally yes. Yes, right? Yes. Yes. Wow. Like, okay, so... My favorite job I ever had, even though I had three jobs at the White House, was to be a waitress at Outback Steakhouse. Dead serious. Bloom and Onion? Just the best. Great. Although, like, the sleeper app is the cheese fries. Let's be clear. No. Like, the Bloom and Onion gets a lot of attention. It's a marquee app. And I get that, you know? But, like, don't sleep on the cheese fries, people. I you won't. Know? Crispy bacon, homemade ranch. I mean, <sighs> homemade? do you want to go now? I'll go right now. <laughs> God, what are we doing here? So, like, imagine my surprise when, like, I'm getting a security clearance, which I, the first security clearance I got, I was, it, it was a top secret clearance. I was 20 years old and basically had it until I was 31. So, you know, I kept my 20s pretty clean. But, um, Jeez. <laughs> but yeah, when I got that first top secret clearance, you better believe they went and talked to all my managers and coworkers at the Outback Steakhouse. They sure did. They knocked on a bunch of neighbors' doors that I didn't have on any forms. And they just said, do you know this girl? Tell us, tell us about her. Yeah, that totally happens. Did you now our our mutual friend Dylan, yeah, who worked for um, Vice President Biden, said that he had a special badge that could pretty much it, it basically said if you're in law enforcement or work for the government, you have to help me. Yeah, give me a pass. Is that true? It totally is true. It was called a credential. Wow. And uh, yeah, we're giving away all the secrets here. <laughs> you know, everybody's got a staff badge, and you can get to different parts of the White House with your staff badge. But yeah, those of us that traveled quite a bit and that were like of a certain seniority level got this credential and it was basically like a leather badge fold that like to some people for all they knew you could be like an FBI agent hot you know it totally was <laughs> i like in hindsight should have used that to such better advantage in my love life like uh, not even like i'm not going to try to get out of parking tickets we're not going to do anything illegal like mm. you know the, we had no scandals in the obama administration for a reason <laughs> But, you know, could have could have been helpful in other ways. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, they, they you know, the thing is, and I'm going to give a shout out to a lot of my a lot of my very best friends did something called advance for the White House mm. where you travel ahead of your principal, president, vice president, cabinet secretary, whatever, and set up their whole visit. Right. And you got to meet with the local law enforcement. And if they're giving a speech at a school, you got to meet with the principal and figure out how you're going to set the school up to accommodate this public event. Right. I mean, naturally, like, sure, you know, you got to set all that stuff up. But, like, you wouldn't believe how many people in a lot of, you know, random places throughout this country don't believe you when you say you're calling from the White House. Or I when wouldn't. you show up and you're like, I'm Joe Smith from the White House. And they're like, yeah, sure you are. I'd be like, this is Royal Caribbean Cruise right, exactly. calling to solicit like, is this me a again. Prank? So, you know, they got to give the folks that travel a little something, something to, to legitimize them. So, Ooh, <laughs> man, I just want one of those bill folds where I can just like whip it out, whip it and out, show people totally. like, I'm a big deal. 
Now let's move past this. And I'll get confess to work. this, Josh. We uh, we're supposed to hand like all that stuff in, badges, phones, everything at the end, and and God, you got I kept the credential. You got to keep it. Good for you. You know, just for posterity. You're, you're gonna have uh, a knock on your door when this comes out from the yeah, Secret Service. Totally, Liz. We're gonna need our badge. Surrender it, <laughs> please. Great. Um, you have to stand up every time the president walks in the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and again, it's more of like a norm than a have to. Mm. But you know, you generally, you generally generally did that you know and a, and a lot of times they'd sort of wave you off right they you know sit down sit down sit down any small talk or is it always down to business totally small talk really yeah totally small talk. with the president with the president which is just like an out-of-body experience like talking about his kids or sports or totally a lot with i would say with barack obama it was a lot of sports mm. and a lot of like movies and tv here's the thing this guy loves tv too <gasps> totally wow yeah yeah i can't so, even imagine what he likes what shows yeah he's God. like I'm a Golden Girls guy. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Oh, yeah, man. Uh, the craziest, the craziest thing, and this is where I recognize I was, you know, this is where I sort of pinched myself in hindsight because I was lucky enough to take a bunch of um, helicopter rides with him on Marine One. Yes. You know, where they take off from the White House lawn and then they shuttle you to Andrews Air Force Base where you get on Air Force One. And with decoys on each side, exactly. right? Exactly. Three helicopters, helicopter. exactly. Marine One and two decoys. And that ride from the White House to Andrews is like, you know, 13 minutes or something. But the first few times I did it, I was so, like, it was so out of body that it felt like an hour. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, you're literally going across the river and you're like, oh, my God, what are we going to talk about? Because, like, you know, you're sitting 16 inches from the President of the United States in, like, an enclosed space off the ground. And you're like, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> and, and some, <laughs> you know, sometimes... You know, we'd take that opportunity to, you know, talk about news of the day, as we called it. You know, what's going on today? Did you see this headline? Did you see this story? Wanted to make you aware. Whatever, right? Mm. Sometimes you're prepping for an event. You know, we did a helicopter lift in in, uh, in Los Angeles to get to the lot when he filmed Ellen. So we used the helicopter ride to go over his lines on Ellen for a skit with her, you know, which, by the way, he didn't like one of the lines, so like I'm furiously calling Ellen's producer on the way, being like, "We gotta cut the line. We gotta cut the line. He's not gonna say it." Great. Um, but you know, other times it was just like, "So how about them bills?" And so this is where this is where my Buffalo nationalism comes into play. Yes, is I'm a rabid Bills fan, uh, which is in some ways unfortunate because we don't have the record to show for it during my lifetime. But gotta love them. These things happen. You always hope for the best. People live in Cleveland, The too. new season starts this week. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. Yes. So I would often kind of go towards the, like, what's happening with the Bears. He'd rib me about the Bills. And, like, that was sort of a safe space to play in. So that was good. Is there an art to knowing when to just be quiet? Yes. The most important art, I would say. In what way? Yeah. You know, you just got to, like, read the room, right? I mm. mean, and I, I say this to, like, young, aspiring political staffers all the time. I'm like, listen, EQ is going to serve you just as much as IQ in these jobs because reading people and reading a room, like, will get you just as far or farther than, like, your book smarts. Mm. And so that's kind of what it was. It was like, you know, you got to read the room and know what's going on. I, you know, I would say the hardest times were when we were doing something that was, you know, related to a tragedy of some kind, you know, obviously in those moments, you're not going to talk about sports, you know, if you're on your way to a memorial or something like that, you yeah. know, that's the hardest time. Um, or, you know, you can sort of, I think you sort of let the president or the vice president, uh, set the tone. And if they sort of look up and say, how's everybody doing today? You're like, phew, I got the clear to talk. Right. Right. Or, you know, or if they're kind of like, 
you know, head in the Blackberry at the time I'm dating. We had Blackberries, Josh. That was a thing. Well, wasn't there a whole thing about how he didn't want to give up his Blackberry? No, and by the way, neither did I because, like, we, th- we were so dependent on the keyboard. Oh, man. I mean, I know. R.I.P. I, you know, here's a funny story. I did not want to, in 2016, we were converting from Blackberries to iPhones in the White House for the official ones. Yeah. Which, you know, have been, like, encrypted and we got all this software on them because we're being bugged and the whole thing. And I was like, I can't give up the BlackBerry keyboard. I just can't. So the White House tech guys are like, oh, we can help you with that, ma'am. And they find me some like bootleg iPhone keyboard add-on that's basically a BlackBerry keyboard that's like not commercially available. From, uh, from like some kiosk in the mall? Well, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. no, it's like, if that, this was the crazy thing is it wasn't even commercially available. It's like a thing that they just had. You know, and then of course I'm like, well, of course, because if anyone's going to have some kind of like custom tech add-on, it's going to be the White House. Yeah, well, yeah. And then I love that. We're like, worried. <laughs> and then I got my act together, and now I just use the iPhone. So it was it was a natural but I, transition. I needed some training wheels, Josh. It happens. You Listen, know, we can't all be did. quick to the party. <laughs> um, so in starting with President Obama during the campaign in '08, and then. Writing it all the way to the end, mm-hmm. we as outsiders just, we all make the joke of like, look how much grayer he is. Sure. Right? And, but did you see, a, I would imagine having this job over eight years that a human being would be fundamentally different from when he started. Mm-hmm. Did you find that? Like a, a shift, a change? Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. You do. Um I think that the gravity of the office takes a toll on mm. him and, frankly, on a lot of us around them. Um, there's something there's something that really um, that is heavy about waking up every day, either as the president or even as staff, and realizing that anything that happened overnight is your problem. Yes. Anything. You know, it's not that in a lot of jobs now – I mean, now I'm not in government, obviously – we're all busy. People are busy. I would never take away from anybody that we were more busy than them just because we worked in the White House, but it was a different kind of busy. It was like a reactive busy knowing that the best or worst thing could have happened overnight, and no matter what it is, we got to deal with it. Yeah. And that, like, the mental weight of that totally takes a toll on anybody. Now, look, there's ways to cope. Like, Obama and Biden were both good about working out, you know, get massages, eat good food, whatever it is, right? Like, spend time with your family, the occasional martini. They deserve to unwind. Yeah. You yeah. Know, Biden's not a drinker, but oh yeah, Obama, you know, and I'm with him. Listen, I don't drink, but I don't need my president to be like me. <laughs> no, right. I mean, listen, this is the most stressful part of my day having this right. podcast. I don't need to unwind after, but when you're dealing with foreign affairs and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you have a, I don't know, a Zima. I don't know what his drink was. Listen, Zima, Mike's hard. Love the Zima reference in here, by the way. Way to go. I see President Obama with a Smirnoff ice <laughs> looking out over the Rose Garden, really just centering himself. If, he's, if he ever listens to this, this we'll get the eye roll, the, fam- the famous <laughs> eye roll. Oh, my gosh. So for you in, in this position, when does, um, when does the sort of – I don't want to say the allure, but how quickly does it become – uh, no longer, I, I don't want to say, what, what am I looking for? Not exciting, but like, yeah. when does all of a sudden it become less of I'm an outsider looking in and more of like, I'm just a part of right away? I, you know, I would say it took, you know, it, yeah, I would say it took like at least a year to like really be like, oh, I work at the White House. Yeah. Like what? Like, I'm not just visiting. They're not going to kick me out today. Like, 
But to be honest with you, up until the very last day I was there, I would like go in and out of those gates and be like, I can't believe they let me in. Yeah. You know, because you just like never expect to do it. Like by the end, I was lucky enough to have a pretty primo parking space. (laughs) So I would drive my car in and out of the gates. And like every day the Secret Service would open the gate and I'd be like, God, I'm so lucky. Really? Like really? That never went away. Could you ever swear to God? Could you ever say, Jim, I forgot my pass? (laughs) (laughs) Not so much. Then you gotta go in a different entrance. Go through a whole whole thing. thing. (laughs) Right. But um, you know, I mean I think I you know, to the spirit of your question, there's definitely moments when you sort of are like, you know, is this worth it? I'm tired. You're missing weddings and birthdays from your family. You're traveling at the drop of a hat, all of which is fine and exciting and a willing sacrifice. But, you know, it takes a toll, you know. It's far from a nine to five, right? Right, right. Are you getting calls in the middle of the night? You're getting calls in the middle of the night because you're often working on different time zones. You know, you're doing you're doing calls uh, nights and weekends routinely. I'll tell you, like, the funniest place I ever did a call was in the middle of a set at an Ikea you know, I was like at an Ikea shopping and it was like, we had a five minute warning to get on a conference call. So I just like sat myself down on a couch in the middle of a display living room and did a call and like waved at the people going by. (laughs) Great. Little, like they think you're talking to your girlfriend. They got no idea. You're planning the the president's travel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we should, that's a, that'd be like a funny thing is like, what's the craziest place the White House staff ever did a call? Cause there'd be plenty of crazy places. Were you the person who got, um, President Obama on WTF with Mark Marin? Were you a part of that? I was. Tell me about that. Because that, first of all, one of the greatest interviews. Secondly, so friggin' smart of you. That is so, that's so funny that you raised that. Yeah, it was my colleague, Shayla Murray, and I um, uh, did that project. And we made that happen. And, um, you know, Mark had put the request in. And, and um, then we'd ha- we had had other people recommend that if Obama was going to do any podcast, like Mark was a really good choice. In part because... You know, you look at an opportunity like that and you think at, at, at any kind of media opportunity and it's like you're not going to have Obama go on like a political only podcast. Right. Like it's like the point is to like reach a different audience. Excuse me. And like yes. talk about talk about more things than just politics. Right? Like you can you can do an interview with, you know, the AP or the Times on whatever the political issue of the day is any time. But like talking you know, you to don't the home on, team, you don't go on WTF for that, you know. So, you know, that's when podcasts were really taking off and like Mark's obviously like an unbelievable host and, you know, discussion guide. And it was just all the more fun because it was also kind of the first time we looked at the Secret Service and the advanced teams and we're like, so we're going to send POTUS to a garage. Awesome. You know what I mean? And it's like- Eagle Rock. Totally. Like a lot of of, uh, media appearances, people had to come to us just from a scheduling standpoint. You know, so when we did Bill Maher- we did Bill Maher and, and we did Trevor Noah in the final few months in 2016. And just by virtue of scheduling, we had to do those both at the White House. And to their credit, they were happy to come and sit down and not do the interview in their studio. Sure. And it was fine. You know, it was taped, whatever. But to be honest with you, we never considered that for Mark Marin because we, we, we really felt like the spirit of the whole podcast and the way the discussion was going to be the best and most organic was to put President Obama in the setting in the garage because that's like what made Mark's podcast special. I remember uh, Mark talks a lot about how he has like a bunch of tchotchkes on the yeah, table yeah. and that he has like, I don't know, some like little ceremonial knife there that people always right. play with. And he was like, Secret Service came in, swept the garage. Only thing they took is the knife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were like, you're not having this near the president. You can have the tchotchkes. <laughs> right. No knives. The other funny thing was like Mark's got a bunch of cats as you Yeah. Know. Yeah. So there was like... 
you know, I think there was some concern on Mark's part of like, are we going to disrupt the cats? And it's like, no, we're not going to disrupt the cats. And they can't be climbing all over the president, but like, right. you know, they can stick around. Wow. Yeah. Do you think, I recently listened to um, Bernie Sanders on the Joe Rogan podcast mm-hmm. and like, obviously um, Kamala has done um, the Breakfast Club with Charlemagne. Yeah. So there's seems all- to be a requisite stop for candidates this year. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. So like, Imagining like if if uh, Biden gets a nomination, is this the new age? Like, are will a nominee have to embrace this to really find uh, find that new audience? Podcasts and and stuff like The Daily Show and and Bill Maher. I think so. Yeah. I think it's absolutely requisite. I think you know it gets back to this mantra in communications that you got to meet people where they are. And and I think you know it's not just it's not just important to talk to those audiences so that they know what you're about and to like sort of garner their vote. Right. Cause like, you know, you want these people to vote for you. You're making your case. You're trying to win. But I think it's more important because by doing those types of platforms and reaching those kinds of audiences, politicians are signaling to those audiences that they matter. Yes. And they do. And it's important to do that. It's important to talk to people who, again, aren't just watching mainstream TV or reading national newspapers every day, like, their votes matter just as much. Their lives matter just as much. The stakes are the same for them. They need the same kinds of support and services, and, you know, they pay their taxes too, right? I mean, like, it sounds trivial, you know, it sounds sounds basic, but it's it's like, it's important to, to, to talk to people, to signal to them, I want you to participate in this political process. Yes. Because that's what we should hope for. We should hope that people feel compelled to be involved. Well, it seemed weirdly like, and Trump took it way too far, but that he had adopted this new communications playbook much quicker and in some cases better than than anyone had before him. And it seems like to a lesser extent, the new candidates will have to, like there is less of a division between the people and the president, Mm -hmm. that they want you to be connecting to them as directly as possible. Right. Accessible. Yes. Direct. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I think, I think that's right. And I think in the Obama years, like you were saying, we were just getting to understand these platforms, Mm. uh, in a lot of those, in, in, in those times, I think we did like a reasonably good job of experimenting, you know, via social media or alternative media, digital media. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Now I don't think it's, I don't even think it's an option. It's a must do. What's it like? Um, who tells you that, that you got bin Laden? (laughs) <laughs> What's that day like? You know, what's funny is for most of us who were not involved in the national security at the time, which I wasn't directly, we found out like most of the American people found out. The news? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. There's not like, I imagine it's like high school. There's gossip going around it's down like the hall. It's like a game of telephone. Yeah. By the end of it, we got some other guy. <laughs> you're like, you're like in the red room yeah. having like, you know, your lunch. Like, you'll never guess. Yeah. Yeah. That was, you know, that was like the most closely guarded secret that I can remember. I would imagine. From the eight years, to be honest. I mean, you know, there's plenty of other classified information that was, you know, protected on at various levels. But that was such an exceptional situation because of the operational risk. Mm. You know, like they had to keep that under wraps just to preserve the integrity of the actual military operation. And then, you know, and then when they were ready to announce it, it started to percolate out. I mean, here, I guess what I would say is... We started to hear some rumblings that there was going to be a statement at night. And you know that on a Sunday night, if the president's doing a live TV statement at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, it's really big. So, like, you know, those of us that were, you know, working in the White House or people sort of attuned to these things, I think very quickly narrowed down 
the possible topics to right. like a few things, this being one, because like what else would what else couldn't wait till Monday morning? Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. J.J. Uh, Abrams is right. directing Star Wars. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you know that was really that was that was something. Um. So. What's life like after you leave the White House? Because <laughs> here we are in your new fancy job and conference room. Here we are. There's a lot of windows in this conference room. A lot of snacks. We're trying to, a lot of free snacks, man. That's the biggest difference. God bless. Really. I want to work here. I can, I can just eat as many chips as I want. <laughs> good snacks at the White House? Sorry to d- divert. Totally good snacks at the White House, but you had to pay for them all. Which what? we should, oh, by the way. I, I mean, guess. right? It's like t- my mom used to like. My mom could not believe I had to pay for my lunch at the White House. And I'm like, Mom, it's your tax money. Fair. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to pay for my chicken fingers. Like, is, are, I mean, is it like a special meal plan? Are we talking $3 chicken fingers or $12? You know, I would say like it was in the middle. But like it was super affordable. It was really good. There was there was a lot of a lot of debate about which food was better, the, the food in the White House proper, which I think was better, mm. the White House mess, which was run by the U.S. Navy. Shout out. Shout out. Great food. Much respect. Yeah, totally. And then across the street in the same co- in the complex, the big gray Eisenhower office building is where actually the majority of the White House staff works. That was more of like a cafeteria. I'd say the breakfast there was good. Hmm. Yeah, the French toast took the cake there. Interesting. We never showed up at the White House hungover, <clears throat> <laughs> but on days we did, that French toast really helped. Oh, I love so. this. Feels so. I feel like I'm sitting here with. You know, Martin Sheen and <laughs> <laughs> Rob Lowe. I wish Rob Lowe was here. I know. Me too. Um, I wish Rob Lowe was always with me. So, yeah. Good good stuff. Life outside is good, man. I'll be honest. It's really good. It's I find my job fulfilling. You know, I think everybody who leaves the White House or politics, anybody that was involved in the whole administration, and this is true, you know, of my friends who worked in the Bush administration too, you leave that kind of job and you have to sort of figure out how you're going to redefine fulfillment in your life, mm. you know, because most of the time people are, are, are seeking out politics as a career because they want to do something good and they want to make government work. And again, while we can have disagreements about the ways in which to do that sometimes, I, I think public service is still a really noble calling and I would tell anyone to do it who's thinking about it. I hope to do it again someday. Yeah. As uh, president? Yes. Think? Will you run with me? Do you ever like... Just, I don't know, flirt with it? Like a little. Because look, me, I've been too vocal on this thing. People know I'm a former drug addict. It's not good. I know, but John Stamos would be your best surrogate, which is like a really big step in the right direction. Can you imagine Stamos as chief of staff? I kind of can. That's the thing. I love that. I'm for Uncle Jesse in the chief of staff's office. I'd make him like secretary of the interior because he (laughs) loves a good national park. I know, but the hair gel, I don't know if he could hack it on the mountains as the secretary of the interior. That's funny. But yeah, you never know. You that, never know. Oh, wow, that would really help my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Twenty years from now, we can point to this as the starting point. I would be oh, the story. I just do it for me, so I have something great to bring it's up. A really at, good story. And uh, about that at Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving with my right wing in laws. Um, <laughs> so good. <laughs> um, and so, like, last one or two questions. Like, as someone who has dealt with communication on the biggest, most important stage there is. I find for me and for people younger than me, I feel like something's been lost, mm-hmm. that there's not, um, we're not impressing upon people as much the the craft and the ability in which to get your message across. Can you speak to that at all? Like what you have found is the most beneficial and uh, what were some tools that you acquired in, in you know curating a message? 
Um, sure thing. Great question. <laughs> For all you communications and journalism majors out there, um, keep at it. You know, this this may feel like unsatisfying, but honestly, like it, it's really important to be authentic. Mm. Like I think authenticity matters so much. Um, you know, not every politician should be on Twitter, as an example. Not every CEO should be on Twitter. Sure, every company probably should be. But, like, we work with a lot of clients now who we don't actually advise that every CEO is on Twitter if they don't think that they can do it in an authentic way because it'll backfire. Because today's audiences, especially young people, of which you and I are sort of young people. Are we're we young on, people, Josh? We're on the tail end of millennial. Are we, like, walking the line? I think millennial is up to 36. All so right, so we're young people. We're good. Woo, Lord. Yeah. You know, but people are smarter, you know, then often given credit for, like, they can sniff through when it's not authentic. So, like, the like number one, when you're crafting a message, like, you know, cut out all the BS, number one. Two, like, know who you're talking to. You know, I can't tell you how many people, like, talk about, oh, I want to break through. I want to break through. I want to break through. It's so hard to break through. I'm like, who do you want to break through with? Yes. That's the question, right? Because there's too much noise. There's, there's like, there's just infinite information. There's so many places people are going to like learn things. So think of really hard about who you're talking to and then let's talk about a message. Mm. You know, um, who are you trying to talk to and what are you trying to say? It really, it's honestly that basic. Is there anything small and nuanced of like things that you, your pet peeves about communication, like ums, buts, weird, <laughs> like, you know, President Obama was the king of folks, yeah. right? He loved folks. That yeah. was his sort of qualifier. Yeah. What's, is there anything for you, good or bad? Mm-hmm. That's a hard one. <laughs> What's yours? Uh, I mean, I, what I hate in myself is I talk with my hands, Jew. Yeah. You know, my people were very expressive. <laughs> Here I am waving my hand around. You guys can't see it. Uh, I'm very uh, conscious of that. And I, I love a good tangent. I love to expound. Yeah. And I sometimes say, wow, I, I could have given that some economy and said what I needed to say in 20 seconds instead of two minutes. I was going to say something similar. I think I do this myself and it's a pet peeve of others too that um, I sometimes over explain things. Hmm. Or like I tend to caveat things. Because I want people to like understand precisely what my intention in saying something is. People pleaser. Right. Me yeah, too. It's, a, it's a, yeah, and and it's like, just say what you say, and if people want to clarify it, then they can clarify it. But I'm constantly trying to catch myself not to try to please everybody by caveating everything to death. Yes. Because then your point gets lost. And giving people, I've heard this phrase, the dignity of their own experience. I love that. You know, like let them come to their own sort of conclusion. Josh, and- that's a great message. Anyway, I'm here to help. Listen, <laughs> I'm, I'm all you need. Um, last question. What are your one or two Liz Allen commandments? Truths that you have discovered that you would want to impress upon someone else? The first one is where we started, which is work hard, be nice. Mm. And the second one is I think everybody's got a story worth telling. So listen. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. That was it. That was Liz Allen. Come the frick on, guys. Right? That's good. That's just good podcasting. You're welcome. Okay, love y'all. Have a great holiday. I'll see you guys before Christmas. So, you know, don't worry. Uncle Josh is here. You know, when your real uncle in real life is, you know, either getting drunk or handsy or embarrassing you just know that good old uncle josh is you know we'll be back every week to be there as your rock for support and to believe in you (laughs) okay what
am I saying? Love you guys. <laughs> Bye.